0: So uh, I became a priest uh, 30 years ago, 30, 30 and a half years ago and my first assignment was in uh, West Hempstead, St. Thomas the Apostle. I spent five great years there, I loved it Um, and then after that I uh, was sent to uh, St. Anthony's High School as chaplain. So the deal there was uh, I'd work in the school. Uh, but I wouldn't live there. The brothers, the Franciscan brothers, they lived upstairs in the friary. So I would be, um, I'd be assigned to some parish kind of nearby to help out. I'd live there, but I'd work in the school. So um, I got, I was told to go live in uh, Our Lady of Miraculous Metal, um, not in Point Lookout, but in Wyandanche. Um, really kind of a big difference. Wyandanche was a very interesting uh, place uh, certainly was twenty five years ago It was uh, uh, very poor, very uh, dangerous at the time, certainly then it was weird it was like almost like a uh, inner city town kind of, but like it was in Suffolk county. Uh, anyway, I knew when I was in my first assignment uh, the deal was it was five years and i was really like there were no extensions there were no exceptions you did 5 years and then you moved somewhere else uh so it was no surprise that i was going but um despite that i think i was kind of in a little bit of denial about having to leave i didn't want to leave my first parish um i didn't start packing until it was like absolutely the last minute it was ridiculous i was just i was just throwing stuff in Garbage bags, essentially, and kind of dragging them out. It was it was it was crazy. No no organization at all. Anyway, I got the Wyandanch. I had like a, you know I had like a, a living room and a bed like a little suite. I just dumped everything in the middle of my my living room. Um, and I remember just being kind of overwhelmed. Um, Wyandanch was really kind of scary. It was uh, break-ins at the rectory were like common. Um, the rectory itself was, it was like a, a ranch house. So you were like on the first floor, like people right outside your window. Like they'd be breaking in, conceivably, like into my bedroom. So it was alarms would go off kind of regularly. So it was very tough the first couple of days. I was kind of scared and was missing where I had been. I was just kind of depressed and overwhelmed. I don't know maybe two or three days well i know probably the first day my parents called just to ask how i was making out if i needed any help and i kind of was like no i'm I'm good even though i wasn't probably by day maybe day three or four i gave a call home uh and i just i got my mom that's who i was looking for and i just said hey can you come on out and give me a hand with this i gotta i gotta get this some order here and she was like yeah absolutely so i think the next day She came out, and uh, I remember her walking into the the living room kind of surveying, like, the wreckage, pretty much, and just her, like, looking at me like, you've got to be kidding. Like, are you you serious? Look at, this is a disaster. Um, It's amazing. I, I was, like, 33 years old at that point. Um sometimes with certain people like your parents like I mean I turned into being 15 again it's just like you kind of go back to like another time uh, my mother starts organizing stuff she's kind of m- talking to herself mumbling at points because she can't believe what a disaster I have created she says uh, she's asking me hey do you have like uh, you know a broom do you have cleaning supplies I had nothing I had nothing so she's like all right She's getting more aggravated, I didn't, I didn't have anything. So she said, let's go, let's go get something. We went to like, you know, Target or Walmart or something like that. We get in my car and things get even worse. Um, my car was worse than my room, the condition of it. Um, and this has been like a, a source of tension between my mother and I since I had a car. Like it just, I, she can't understand why it's such a mess, the condition of my car. Oh, so like, so now we're driving, she's yelling at me about the car, she's yelling about me about the the living room, and I'm thinking like, man, why did I even call her? What? This is like, just getting worse. Um, we're driving, she's yelling, I'm kind of ignoring her, I'm yesing her. The back seat of the car, which was a mess, uh, there was like a, like a plastic bag, like, those, like a crinkly white bag from... Some store, and it was blowing around in the back seat. Uh, kind of thinking it's like the the wind. The wind, like I guess the window is open, and it's just sort of bouncing around. It's irritating. It's making this noise. So I'm I'm driving. I'm trying to ignore my mother. I'm like with one hand. I'm trying to grab this bag. Finally, come to a red light when I can turn around, and uh, I realize what's going on back there. It was a bag, but it was a a squirrel that was like playing with the bag. This thing was like kind of sitting there like l- looking at me. I couldn't believe it, you remember like in like, you know, like uh, Alfred Hitchcock movies when something happens and, and then the, the, the camera like zooms completely up, right up close up. Like that's almost the, the image I had, like the squirrel was like in front of my nose. And I'm thinking, my God, like what am I, how am I gonna, if she's, if my mother knows that there's a squirrel in the car, (laughs) she's gonna lose her marbles, like it's gonna be, so, um, I turn back and she must have, I must have looked like white as a ghost, she looks at me, she's like, Brian, what's wrong? And I said, nothing. (laughs) And she goes, no, 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 what's wrong? And I go, Ma, there's nothing. She goes, Brian, what's wrong? And I'm like, Ma, there's a squirrel in the back seat of the car. <laughs> she lost her marbles, um, screaming, uh, arms and legs flailing, um, trying to open, she's opening the car door. I'm like, we're driving. Like, so we pull over, we get out, I open the doors, the windows, and eventually the squirrel leaves. Um, It was a a horror show. She was like, she wouldn't talk to me. Like she was, just got back in the car. We went to to say it was Target, came back to the rectory. It was like crazy. She was acting like it didn't even happen. Like I I was like, I knew something was up with her. She was just so traumatized and I think furious with me. Uh, She finishes helping organize my room And then she's getting ready to leave. So I'm walking her to the parking lot and then she kind of turns and she says, something like this, I mean, this is a long time ago. Word for word, I don't remember it, but this is very much the gist of what she said. It was like, Brian, I know leaving St. Thomas's has been tough. And she did, like she had been at my goodbye mass. It was very emotional. She said, I know you're missing people. I know this place is very unfamiliar. It's also kind of scary. She could see that. Moving is stressful. I I remember that she even said this. She said, you know, and you're doing this alone, which is tougher. She said, when your father and I moved, you know, the second place they lived, I guess, after they were married, she was like, we had each other. You know, we didn't know everything was unfamiliar, but we had each other. And she's like, I know, like you're, You don't have a wife. Like, you're on your own here. So it adds kind of to the the weight of it all. But then she said, but this is going to get better. You're going to get settled in. And you're going to be okay. And they were very comforting words. But that was part one. And then she said to me, but Brian you need to get it together. <laughs> like, come on. Like, you got to get a handle on this. You got to get a handle on your stuff. You got you to get organized. I mean, she didn't completely clean everything up. She said, you got to finish this job. You have squirrels in your car. Like, come on. This is not, you got to get, it. get your act together. And I remember that. I remember... Her words and her sentiment it was interesting it was like this weird combination of comfort and challenge (laughs) like in the the same paragraph she nailed it like I needed comfort she knew I was overwhelmed she knew I was kind of depressed and kind of out of sorts and she acknowledged that, and she told me it was going to be okay, and that was comforting. But she also challenged me big time. I was Like, come on, like, you can do this. You've got to do this. You've got to get it together. Anyway, just this comfort challenge thing. They're almost kind of like opposites, aren't they? Don't they seem to be kind of like opposite, I don't know, concepts? or approaches, but she managed to use both and communicate both because I think I needed both. I know I needed both. You know, look at this first reading tonight from Isaiah, Old Testament. Comfort, give comfort to my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Like a shepherd, he feeds his flock and he gathers the lambs in his hands. I mean, that really is comforting talk. It is very tender and loving and kind of like parental, isn't it? Now, jump. Let's jump to the gospel, Mark's gospel. And we got this description of John the Baptist that he's like he's like Rambo in the coming out of the desert. This description of this wild man, he's wearing these crazy clothes, he's eating this like wacky food. And more than what he's saying, more than what he's eating and, and looking like, it's what he's saying. He's just lighting everybody up. And they're hearing it. And they're loving him. He's challenging them. And it says great crowds were gathering around them. Like the people, presumably, they knew in their gut, it was like, I need, we need to get it together. We screw, we've screwed things up. I'm not living the life I'm capable of living. I should be living. And I think he very simply just reminded people. He kept talking about repenting. You know, it's interesting, like usually on Sundays, you 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 get the readings, the first reading, it's usually an Old Testament reading, and you get the Gospel. First reading and the Gospel are always similar. Like the theme, is always very similar. They may have been like written hundreds of years apart, but the theme is always the same. So, you know, one Sunday maybe you got, it's about mercy. So you get an Old Testament prophet talking about mercy, and then you get Jesus in some parable talking about mercy. So we're like, yeah, okay, that's kinda, the church wants us to talk about mercy. That's the theme for the day. But this tonight's kind of different because it's like first reading, it's comfort. Gospel, it's challenge. They seem like opposites. But maybe, maybe that's kind of the point. Sometimes we need both. They seem to compete, but sometimes we need both. You know, this next month, my father will be dead uh, 20 years, and um, well, for the last, I'd say since then, uh, I've I, I, I talked about him a lot. I've talked about him up here a lot because he was a great man and absolutely influenced my life. He was a great example. Anyway, when he died, uh, I did his funeral mass, so I preached, and then my niece, uh, the oldest grandkid, her name was Megan. She was, uh, I think, a senior in college at the time. She, uh, she got up and gave a eulogy about her grandfather. This is part of what she said. Grandpa was always a larger-than-life figure in my life. I know that I speak for the other grandkids my siblings and my cousins, when I say that he wasn't simply our grandfather, he was also a good friend. Somebody we all liked hanging out with, as much as we liked hanging out with our friends. I know that sounds strange, but it's true. We loved being with them. I don't think there are many kids who say that about their grandfather, like they were friends. He had a great imagination and he loved to play with Us. He was so much fun because he acted just like us, like a kid. He had a gift for relating to children. He played such an important role in my childhood. He used to take me to the candy store around the corner all the time. He played games with us in the backyard. He watched us in the mornings before we went to school. He sat alone in the back of the church watching me as an altar server when I had the eight o'clock mass on a Tuesday morning and nobody else was there my, for family. He taught me to say my prayers every night. He also taught me how to cheat at cards. It was actually a lesson learned in self-defense since he used to cheat shamelessly off me. He taught us how to sing Gaelic songs. He was fiercely proud of his Irish heritage. And then she gives a couple of examples, a little more detailed stories about him. And then she concludes with this. It's very difficult to imagine life without him, but I know he'll always be with me. That he'll always be with all of us because he's still alive in the people who loved him. When my family moved to Singapore, My brother uh, and his family, my niece being one of them, uh, my brother had work, sent them to Singapore for three or four years, uh, years ago. So she says, when my family moved to Singapore eight years ago, I went through a very tough time. I was depressed and it lasted for a few months. I missed home, I missed my friends, and I was hating Singapore. Grandma and Grandpa came to visit during that time, and I was so happy to see them that I snapped out of my gloomy mood for a while. It was almost impossible to sulk and cry in front of Grandpa because he was so vibrant and energetic all the time. The days after they returned to New York, I was feeling sad and lonely again, until one night when I climbed into bed, I looked up at the ceiling. And I discovered that Grandpa had written Hi Meg in black magic marker under the shelf above my bed. I started to laugh and cry at the same time, because when I closed my eyes, I could hear him saying the words himself. It was just like Grandpa, funny, thoughtful, and completely spontaneous. You know, my father could very much be John the Baptist when he needed to be. He could be tough. He could be very honest. He was very uncompromising with the stuff you shouldn't compromise. He didn't really care about not being liked if he wasn't liked. He certainly wasn't looking to be friends with his kids. When we were kids and when we got in trouble, if we got in trouble in school or on some team, and we got a call from a, a coach or a teacher, and they were expressing some some screw up on our part, we were presumed guilty. He was very honest. He didn't start blaming a teacher or a coach for something that they didn't do. And he'd let us know when we needed to hear the truth. But he was also that thoughtful grandfather that my niece described. And not just to his grandkids, but to his kids as well. He was both, like that gentle and challenging thing. I think the great ones do both. What are you better at? Are you better at comfort or challenge? Isaiah or John the Baptist? You know, I think if we're honest, especially those who are old enough, we probably can look back on relationships and you say, Yeah, I was I was too much of one and maybe not enough of the other. I should have been a little bit more comforting, and maybe I was a little too harsh. Or well, the opposite. I made excuses endlessly, and I was never tough. Hey, none of us does it right. None of us none of us nails it. We do the best we can. What are you better at? If you walked into a room and comfort was in one corner and challenge was in the other corner, which corner do you gravitate toward? Well, that's fine, whatever it is, because they're both right, they're both needed, they're both true. But the operative word, I think, is both. So if your instinct is to be comforting, that's great. But we can't forget challenge. And same with the other way around. The comforter or the challenger. We need both, so be both.